0: So welcome everybody to rationalism versus mysticism episode 10. We're going to be talking about uh, Kabbalistic concepts continuing with that and my hope is that obviously that it'll continue to be interesting for all of you, that it'll be relevant to all of you and that it'll have practical implications in some way in your life and the understanding of some of these concepts and ideas shouldn't just be in the shamaim, They should be things that really interpenetrate you and, 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 you know, into your heart, into your soul, into your daily life and your mindfulness. And I'm going to try to echo that. in some of the things that I say, um, you know, and particularly I want to begin with a, with a beautiful quote from Kabir. He says something along the lines of to whom shall I preach? All I see before me are the faces of the divine and the reason i want to Salem begin Elohim. with exactly and the reason i want to begin with that quote is because this class is going to be about mystical intimacy intimacy with hakadosh Hu, with god with the Ensof, whatever name you want to give it and it's such a beautiful way of seeing the drama of human life it's such a a, a, a love story rather than some kind of cold and removed way of looking at the world. And I think this is one of the many traps that you can fall into on the on a spiritual path, you know, is that you might say to yourself, there's all these ideals, there's all these ways of conceptualizing the spiritual. And, it's, it's you know, if I want to remove my ego, I might think that I need to close off my heart. And you might not even realize that you're doing it but you are doing it in a way. And you might say, I have to overcome my ego and transcend my ego. Let me put down my ego. And it, you know, whatever psychodynamic patterns were happening before that, before you began your spiritual path, are going to continue on to your spiritual path. So hopefully this will balance out a lot of that. And this will open you to this idea of my- mystical intimacy. So I want to start off with a question. How many times do you guys think, to yourselves about being in a relationship with infinity. You know, it's, it's so easy to, to think about infinity and to think about God and to call it God. But when do we really ever consider it truly a relationship? The problem that I've found with a lot of these Buddhists and a lot of these meditation apps is that they talk about infinity, they talk about this ego death and transcending the ego, but it becomes so much focused on transcending your ego And any idea and any notion that you are continuing to be in a relationship, they say, "Oh, that implies that you're separate from this. You're therefore not at the highest level. So because you're insisting that you're in a relationship, you're seeing yourself as separate, and therefore you're you're on the wrong path." Now
1: you have to have an ego to say to yourself.
0: Exactly. I mean, right? One hundred percent. I think you have to you have to sometimes be nice to the ego. That's my new way of conceptualizing it is that instead of putting your ego down, instead of saying to yourself, I'm not good enough at this, and I'm not doing it right. And I shouldn't even be able to say the word I, or, you know, whatever we're thinking to ourselves, it's not healthy. It's not, it's not really going to open us eventually to these experiences. So be gentle with yourself, be kind with yourself. But, you know, obviously if you think you need to be firm with yourself in certain scenarios, do that. But I think the name of the game, the baseline should be compassion to the self. Um, So you talk about Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism, they present, you know, certain types of views of this relationship with infinity. So Buddhism, I think of as very reductionist, you know, and I obviously I'm not the world's expert on Buddhism, but a lot of it (laughs) is very very reductionist, you know, And, and from my humble perspective and anyone who wants to write an email or an angry email, please write me one and educate me. Um, but very often, that's something that comes across to me. What
1: do you mean by reduction? What?
0: Reduction is in the sense that let's only damage, be mindful. Damage. It's only about mindfulness. It's not about a drama. It's not about... Wow. It's, it's really good to see you. Fahdahl, pull up a chair. Welcome. So, you know, it's, it's not about this, this, uh, this beauty of, of relationship and of intimacy. It very often is just about mindfulness.
1: They do have a one, I think, interdependence.
0: It's like everything is dependent on. Beautiful, 100%. So that's the thing. I, I'm biased. I'm definitely biased because I guess some of the Buddhist thinkers, like I'll be honest, I think Sam Harris very often puts down some of these ways of you know, being relational in a loving way towards a god. At least that's the way that I see it, is that he puts down that whole notion of god because of his own reasons. And I, I think it's way too extreme. So, so forgive me for saying it but about Buddhism, really Sam Harris Buddhism, I think is that way, not Buddhism in general, I'm 100% sure that there are forms of Buddhism that are not so extreme, baruch haba. so that's, no, don't, don't apologize, welcome, come anytime, time is an illusion to learn in this class, <laughs> so, so that's, that's Buddhism, Hinduism is very often a drama, it teaches that there's God is the only one, and we're going to see a lot of parallels in this Kabbalistic yeah. thought, but God is the one. and he's playing a game of hide and seek with himself, and there's this beautiful drama that plays out. And Judaism, of course, we have this classical notion of Hashem being this divine being and the creator. And very often he's perceived as separate and as a separate entity. But I want to show you that there are a lot of traditional uh, ways of thinking within a Jewish mindset that don't see God as so distant and don't see God as so far away. And they actually express God as being in a, you know, in a desperate need to be in love with us, that God is seeking us out. It's so audacious. And also the mystics in Judaism are of course, reciprocally desperate lovers seeking to consummate their love towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So it's, it goes both ways. And it's, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it because unless, you know, a lot of people, like I think of Sam Harris again, they get angry when you anthropomorphize too much because what happens is you you end up not being so philosophically accurate. But at the end of the day, you you start to realize nothing I say is actually philosophically accurate, including the words coming out of my mouth right now, because you can never fully capture reality in words. So you might as well have a little bit of fun. You know, why not have fun? Call it God, call it uh, whatever you want. I, I could only well, so many things I could say in a school, but oh, the heck you want and just be more tolerant of people and, and as long as it's not leading to any kind of crazy acts and you know like uh, terrible pagan rituals I think we'll be okay um, so so a so beautiful Pasuk from anybody know like the hind or like the certain animal is crying out on the riverbank so too my my soul is crying out to you, God. So I want you to, you know, very often when we come to these classes, we have our brains on. We just came from a long day of work, business, whatever we're doing. And we have our brains constantly running and thinking and, you know, trying to analyze. But something that I've learned on this path is that one of the keys to spirituality is allowing the words to land on your heart. Whatever that means for you, without thinking about them too much and just... Feel them as they come in. That's, I really think, the way that Tehillim is supposed to be read, almost like a guided message. That's really a beautiful thing. So, you know, as they always say, listen to my words, but also to the silence between the words, you know, and listen to the, the cadence of it and the way that it's coming across. Don't only listen to content. And, you know, on line 33, you didn't like the third word that I used. You know, it's, that's not really going to cut it for you, I think, on the spiritual path. That's my humble opinion. Here's a hymn of glory written by one of these uh, medieval Hasidim. He says, I shall compose pleasant psalms and weave hymns because for you, my soul pines. He's building off of Tehillim. My soul desires the shelter of your hand to know every mystery of your secret. As I speak of your glory, my heart yearns for your love. I love the word mystery in there because it, it reminds me of Albert Einstein's whole thing we delved into last year about the mystery and the mysterious is the way in which Albert Einstein discusses God. You know, he says, in this way, in this way alone am I a religious man when it comes to a relationship with the, with the mysterious or understanding that there's so much that we don't understand. And that in and of itself, why should there be something at all? Why should there be something rather than nothing? So he's uh, sitting there meditating and saying, God, bring me into your mystery. Show me the wonder that I should be having towards you. Uh, then you have the 16th century Jewish mystic. His name is Eliezer Azikri. He says, beloved of my soul, merciful father, draw your servant after you to do your will. He's saying, God, please draw me after you. Allow me to do that. That's a real prayer. You know, we so often pray and we, we have all these ego-driven reasons. And, then, you know, I'm not putting anybody down. People are in a lot of distress sometimes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking for ego-driven things. I really don't. I think you have your own personal relationship with God and that's for you to figure out. But for me, something that's helped God me in prayer is that instead of asking for specific things, say, God, please give me clarity to help serve you better. Please give me wisdom to speak the correct words in the class tonight. God, please give me humility when I'm speaking to my patients and give me so that I don't get angry. You know, when somebody says something that is against me and, and, if you if you pray like that, it's so beautiful because it really is bringing you more intimately towards God, because now you're not, you know, forcing something. You're not saying I insist God on X, Y, and Z. And like we always say, faith is not insisting on a particular outcome. Faith is right. be let go in this moment.
2: <clears throat> Mikey, yes, the idea. I love hearing you <laughs> I'm so happy to see you again. You're doing So I I just want to add one thing that I, that I always that I learned years ago from one of my rabbis. In addition to everything you said, that when you're asking or requesting, it's always if asking Hashem that if if you think it's the right thing for me. Because a lot of people ask for things and and let's say they get it, but it's not what Hashem wants you to have. Yeah, I, I think I think that's beautiful. Well, because...
1: well,
0: you know, you know, so yeah we never really recognize and we never really know what's going to be good for us and what does that even mean it's you have to be right you have to be your day you have to take god's perspective to know that and we can never really do that with our ego so the best we can do is and i want to get to this is to how to help remove that ego in a loving and kind way you know rather than forcing it right so beautiful so mikey just one thing
2: before you before you move on Sure. The ego is the word. Is the word is the ego. The word ego. It it, it always makes it like it, it. The connotation is
0: not good. Egotistical. So that, that's I love the U.S. because I want to make a very important point here. But you like, sort so of brought
2: I, out a good point about it. Yeah, no, ego. It's great. Not, I want you to clarify that. Yes,
0: great. Exactly. I want to clarify that for sure. When I say ego, I don't even mean egotistical. I don't mean somebody oh. that's difficult to be. I don't mean a narcissist. I mean, the very concept of a self. I mean, everybody has this in a Freudian sense. Everybody has a concept of a separate self. And a huge part of mystical intimacy is being able to let go of that slowly, slowly within the meditation, within the mitzvah that you're performing, within whatever you're going to do. And I'll give you a little sneak preview into what we're going to discuss soon, which is that they go so far as to say that when you're performing mitzvah, the highest level you could get to is that you feel that you are God performing the mitzvah and that when you're praying it's God praying to himself and, and when you're worshiping God it's God worshiping himself because you've removed yourself so completely that now it's God doing it with himself and that's a beautiful so thing yeah
1: you align your will with God's
0: will before mm-hmm. exercising that's bit right I said it's on khara or something, something along those lines yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> somebody could again shoot me show me a, an angry email at the end you know if you if you find that differently I so not yet I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting for them I'm still eagerly awaiting an angry email um, so he continues with this he says your love is sweeter to him than honey from the comb than pleasing savor my God my heart's delight oh come quickly do not forsake me reveal yourself my dearest. They're saying it's so intimate and it's so romantic the way that this rabbi is is speaking towards God. And I want you to be open to that because we're so often taught that God is this kingly figure and that he's so different. He's he's so distant and and that might be true, but like we said about, you know, intimacy is our mysticism is that paradox is so often at the very core of everything. And unless you accept that, you're not going to be able to really move forward within mysticism because paradox is kind of the name of the game. We're going to see that again soon too. So in normal mysticism, really like traditional mysticism and keeping the mitzvot, God remains the other. And even in throne mysticism, which is you, you do this meditation where you elevate to see the Merkava of Hashem. There's no intimacy beyond just gazing at God. There's no divine embrace. There's no real feeling of God enveloping you in his glory. It's just, you know, I had this unbelievable vision, but what well, you didn't feel God so closely. And what, what a lot of these mystics are saying is we're daring to go and push the envelope even further. And if you disagree with this, by all means, you know, that's fine. But I think there's a beauty to just being open to it and see if it resonates with you and how it might resonate with you and see what you want to accept and what you want to reject, if you want to reject anything. Um and the Gemara says, you know, because God is described as a consuming fire, esh ochelet, we can't get too close because what are we risking? Being burned, being consumed, and being self-annihilated. And therefore, we have to settle for just indirect divikut. We have to settle for just being indirectly connected to God and living a godly life by performing mitzvot and doing acts of loving kindness. And they say it's as if an individual cleave to God. Not really, it's impossible to actually do it. So it's very philosophic, philosophical, right? But the point that we're going to make in this class is that you can go beyond. So here's three forms of de-vikut, direct divikut within Jewish mysticism. Number one is intimacy in which the mystic retains his individuality. That's the classical form. And very often it's described in erotic terms. Now, I don't want you to get all you know into a, a whole frenzy about this because we already discussed the sefirot, that the they are all having sex with each other, and it sounds all crazy, and it sounds perverted. But once you realize that sex is almost like the analogy that they're able to give, because it's the closest thing in terms of just a spiritual pleasure that you're able to get. And, and it's, the, it's the strongest metaphor that they can give. So you don't have to necessarily think of it like that in your own life, because unfortunately, in the 21st century, a lot of these sexual images are very tainted. But from a more pure, loving relationship, it might hit you differently. So you don't pick and choose what works for you. The other one is union with God, which is often achieved by being absorbed and surrendering into God. And then finally, there's reunion with God. And you know, what's interesting about this is it's very similar to just union with God, but it's the realization that God was the source of everything the whole time. And God was you the whole time. So therefore, it's reunion and reunification with God, rather than just unifying in the first place. So those are our three different ways of thinking about mysticism. Uh, the Naviim. What do we know about the Naviim? They talk about Hashem is this husband, we're like the, the wife. You look at Shidah Hashirim, It's very erotic, you know. So if erotica bothers you regarding the mystical, you don't have. I mean, it could bother you, but you have to realize there there is a source for that within the Tanakh itself that the Hachamim had their stamp of, appro- of approval for. So it's very important to, to kind of, you know, be at ease with that. Um, they even go so far as to say, Moshe Isha Elohim, right? We know that in the Torah it calls Moshe Isha Elohim. And they say that means he was the husband of God. Right? What, what could that possibly mean? It's clearly something that is, you know, when you reach a certain level of meditation, you feel as though you're married to God in this very intimate mystical way and you don't have to think of it in physical terms try to let it land on you in, a, in whatever spiritual way that you feel it can and it says that Moshe spoke to God face to face and they said this was the ultimate intimacy with God that Moshe had that he had zivug ima he had intercourse with the Shekhinah again what the heck does this mean this is the one thing that Bert Chabot hears is, is that line, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's amazing because like, that's a great point is that anybody who hears that might think you're crazy if you tell them that. But the point is <laughs> that it's supposed to be something that is at the highest level of, of mystical experience. And whenever you divorce it from the experience, like, and I hope that this class is not doing that. I hope this class can bring you to some form, a little taste of that experience just from opening yourself, just from, you know, feeling the thoughts, letting them pass and saying, okay, let me try to give this a second look. Because so often we've been cynical. So often we've closed off our hearts. We've been so cynical towards anything sounding like this. We rolled our eyes and we rejected it, but it doesn't have to be that way. That doesn't have to be the last word. We could continue to say, you know what? I'm open to it. I want to but, see what uh, there is to it.
1: Right before my temper, that he told the people not to have sexual relations
0: mm. so that's physical sexual relations with your wives but when obviously with God there's no seminal emission, there's no you know physical act being done but this is the best spiritual you know uh analogy that they could give
2: and you know it's Michael something- Mike yeah. sure it's, it's, it's also the verbiage that's used is getting someone to that point of excitement I guess in the whole pitch, no? Absolutely. No, to I use that, is that, are those words at definitive, and in, in the, in the, those are definitive words, uh, or that's an interpretation? Where is that, where is you yeah, bringing that from? It's all from the Hasidim,
0: really, this this idea of zivugi mashechina. So you don't even have to use that exact analogy. This was the analogy that they chose because they said, you know, dude, I, I can't explain it to you, but when I was there, mystically, the best analogy I could give for you is, is like having sex. And they say, wow. I, okay, you know, it's not actually like what you did in the bedroom, but I'm telling you, I, I, I'm sorry, this is the best example I can give. It's like somebody who never tasted chocolate, say, what is chocolate like? You know, and you try to explain it to them. You say, the best thing I can tell you is it was kind of like eating a cocoa bean, but it wasn't quite, a, you know, so, so th- take it like that. You don't have to think of it in terms of the physical act, you know,
1: right,
0: right. So, but great point um, about teshuvah. What do you think they do with that? What is, so according to the Kabbalists, Teshuvah is another name for the Shekhinah. If you're a Baal Teshuvah, it also means that you had this relationship. You're a husband with the Shekhinah. And, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the words of, of Martin Buber, though, even in this beautiful, intimate relationship, there still remains an I and a thou. It still remains a separateness. Even though you have so much cleaving to God and Devekut, you still remain separate ultimately, from God. So what, what it usually is, in these terms, where you didn't fully merge with God, it was just, you got so close to the divine that it was self-transformatory. It, 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 you were transformed. You were a different person. So you look in uh, the Nevi'im, you hear about in uh, Sefer, Melachim, sorry, Sefer Shemuel, you hear about Shaul HaMelech, and he's walking by, and there's all these Beneha Neviim and they're playing a certain thing. And it says, they had some kind of ecstatic experience from the music that they were playing and they all became Nevi'im. It's a very strange thing. But once you start to realize that there were meditation schools and there were ways of conceptualizing this stuff, and it was a real thing. Once you have such a peak experience, you don't come back the same person. And a modern day equivalent is psychedelic treatments you know, people that are given psychedelics as part of psychiatric trials. Why is it so important? Because just the memory of the experience that they had is enough to stave off their depression. And it's enough to stave off all these different mental illnesses that they felt like they were having. Just the memory. Because they remember having had this expansive experience. And now they're different. Now they're no longer going to succumb completely to whatever thought patterns had gotten them. I mean, at least for a certain amount of time. And the hope is that it'll continue to to progress. Um, So think of, you know, Bam talks about in the intro to Morene Bukhim. What does Bam say? He says, sometimes, you know, you're walking along this path of life and everything is completely dark. And some people, they have these moments of clarity. Some people have a little gemstone, That's like, you know, giving a little brightness to the path once in a while. And that's the the highest level they achieve. Other people have these flashes of lightning. And for a moment, the entire path is lit up before them. To me, this is what that self-transformatory experience is like when you reach this really high level of meditation and intimacy with God. Um, The Christians talk about the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is, you know, the Christian mystics talk about this, which is after having had a very peak experience, what might happen is you're going through a little bit of the depression because you say to yourself, I miss that. I I feel now I know what I'm missing out on. I know I'm not there anymore. But the beauty is that the cure to this is to say, don't be sad that I'm not there at this moment. Instead, rejoice at the fact that you've had it in the past and recall and remember that expansiveness that you had and be comforted from it. The Kabbalists call this katnut and gadlut. There's a certain ebb and a flow in life. Sometimes we we feel more expansive. Sometimes we, we feel much smaller. And like we always mention, the root of so much mental illness is that feeling of smallness, that feeling of ego isolation. And that's why psychedelics are hopefully so effective. Is because they take the ego and they expand it. And they show it the interconnections between itself and the world around. And you don't need a psychedelic for this. Like we always say, you, all you need is good friends, good work, a good relationship, going out on a hike in nature, look, going stargazing. These are all ways of expanding yourself, feeling larger than yourself. But of course, what are we left with? We're left with an enduring paradox. There's always going to be a paradox. How could union with God possibly ever be attained? Your logic will never comprehend it. You know, how could there be a relationship between the infinite God and the finite human being, the eternal and the temporal, the spiritual and the material creator and creature? It seems so impossible logically. And we talked about, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Yitro, Yitro was a person who achieved some unbelievable experience when he spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he says, Baruch and he has a whole transformative experience. But the, the thing that brought him to the desert in the first place was what? Being Yitroch and Moshe, and having Moshe's da- uh, uh, kids with him, and he, he brought his, his daughter with him, because Moshe's wife, and it's all these particular family connections. So through loving the particulars of your life, I would argue, you can be brought towards the expansive loving experience. You don't have to reject the particular in order to merge with the infinite. And I think that's a very important thing because it's a very common pitfall, I think, on the spiritual path is to reject the particulars of life and to isolate yourself from them to only be about God. So I want to give you guys a new way of viewing paradox. Instead of viewing paradox as an insolvable, insoluble dilemma, something that is going to bother you and say, ah, you know, it's just, I can't wrap my head around it. Doesn't have to be that. It could be actually a challenge that you embrace, because paradox, although it could be frustrating, is actually the key or the first step towards achieving mystical experiences very often. And it's all—it's the thing that leads you towards these expansive experiences. So I love this quote from the book I was reading: "Paradoxes are an entree to truths not readily available within the confines of logic." So your logic is so limited, like we talked about last semester, right? The elephant and the rider, and that we talked about the limits of rationalism, that your rationalism is so limited. And that if you really want to be a whole human being, you have to be okay with going beyond the rational and going into the experiential and the emotional and things like that. So when you're going beyond the confines of logic, ah, now you got it. So a lot of these Zen koans, a lot of these uh, Zen Buddhist uh, phrases, They're meant to shock you out of limited ego logic and into this mystical experience all of a sudden. I remember one
1: poem. What's the sound of one hand clapping?
0: Yeah, that kind of thing, right? There's a great one. Uh, They say the the student came to the guru and he says, uh, "You know, please uh, tell me um, what is the meaning of, of this, right? Ping Ting comes for fire. And he tells him, who's Ping Ting? Oh, I know Ping Ting is the god of fire. So if Ping Ting is coming for fire, he doesn't need to come for fire. He already has fire. He's the god of fire. Ping Ting is coming for fire is the equivalent of you as a meditator coming for enlightenment. Because you're already enlightened. You're already God. So whatever you're seeking out, God, you're already God. So he says, no, wrong. He says, so master, what is the meaning of Buddhism? He says, Ping Ting comes for fire. (laughs) and that's it so i think the point and i me explaining the rest of it would would be ruining it in a way but i'll do it anyway i think the meaning of that is kind of don't say it out the second you try to logic your way through it which is what we're just saying you miss the point don't reason with
1: with the one hand clapping like someone i said one hand clapping can't make a sound but then the whole point of the fact is that you can still
0: imagine experience it, experience
1: that
0: paradox mm-hmm. of like, you can still experience the impossible right. in a way, hundred percent. I love that. And to me, it's so amazing to learn this stuff because you get a flavor for what these people were like and what you could be like, if you delve into this a little bit more. So go beyond the confines of your logic, a mystic without paradox, they say is like a lover without a beloved. Mystics love paradox so much, it's like they're beloved. Mm-hmm. So look at, at paradox that way. Now you don't have to look at it in a negative way. Rabbi Nachman Mibretzlov, what does he say? Nothing is as whole as a broken heart. Right? That's a complete paradox. A broken heart is by definition mm-hmm. not whole, but it's so whole. Because if your heart is broken, it's open to experience. Like the, like the quote from Leonard Cohen Um, There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Uh, I think I I quoted that once in a Hanukkah speech. So if you ever feel broken, if you ever feel cracked open, that's when you're actually the most open to the world. When you reach your lowest point, you're open to the greatest change, as they say. Um, So now let's talk about how some people have resolved this paradox (laughs) of you being separate from God. Right. Right. So we have the Maharalmi Prague. Who was this man? Unbelievable person. He was really a, a polymath, as they say. And that doesn't mean he learned a lot of math. You know? <laughs> it means that he was a person who was like a Renaissance man. He was able to really be, have his hands in so many different areas of expertise. And uh, he's classically known as the creator of this golem. We'll get into that hopefully another time. He was an expert in law, ethics, theology, biblical commentary, Talmudic commentary, mysticism, and the, Mahal- the, the, the Rabbi of Kotzk, says the maharal is so wise he even has brains in his feet i just thought it's funny because this big rabbi (laughs) saying this about another big rabbi and he's so smart he has brains in his feet so and centuries before the philosopher hegel i'm sure mike you know you probably know a lot more than i do about him he has this idea of thesis and antithesis exactly that they're resolved by synthesis that the third thing will be able to resolve the, the thesis and antithesis into a synthesis I love that it's it. Sense, yeah. that's beautiful um, uh, it's really and, and the Maharal expresses exactly this idea that you're able to take the thesis and the antithesis and with that paradox you're able to make a synthesis a mystical synthesis
1: there's a very famous one, Parmenides and Her- Heraclitus too, three philosophers. Parmenides said, "There's no such thing as." Well, Her- Heraclitus said, "Is everything's always changing? You can't step into the same river twice." Mm. Parmenides said, "Everything is. There's no such thing as motion. Just motion is an illusion mm-hmm. because we experience yeah. time." Yeah. So they have that totally opposite philosophy. Wow. there's synthesis that comes out of this, but by, by experiencing the paradox, being that both. Philosophy a Mystical experience. The,
0: I to yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I love that. That's exactly the point. Is that you're sitting with and in the midst of crazy paradoxes, you're able to open yourself to some kind of mystical experiences. And that's why they say what that Hakadosh baruchu when he when he ha- when he whenever you see God's greatest Gedulah, you also see God's greatest humility. Right, so whenever you see God's most amazing things, you're also at the same time seeing his humility. So they say at the same time as God is the Melech and all this stuff, he's also Hanun bin Ahum, he's also uh, Matira Surim and Pukai Avrim, also taking care of each little thing. And they are one and the same. Being so great, it also means that he's taking care of each particular thing. And that's the difficult thing to actually realize at all times. And when the, uh, the, the, these hachamim will tell you that the mitzvot are a way of Binding and coalescing the physical and the spiritual. And I say the will of the infinite God is articulated in the finite human deed. So when you're performing a mitzvah, you can see that as an act of love. If done with the right intention, slowly with kavanah, you you pick your, your favorite mitzvah to do in that way and do it. And it could be a real experience of closeness with God. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, in doing the finite, we may perceive the infinite. The human soul is like a seed that's implanted into the human body to grow and to develop. Um, I don't know if any of you know uh, Zusha, the, the, the singer, the hippie, the, the, the hippie Hasidic, Hasidic singer. <laughs> Unbelievable music. I started loving it, really. And um, he has this great song, Hareni Mechaven. I just quoted it in my speech on Shabbat. He says, He says, Behold, I set the intention to make myself into a holy throne and chariot to the divine presence. Imagine that. Imagine you sitting before God and instead of saying, God, please give me this, please give me that, you know, like we always do. And worrying about your things. Step out for a second from your own ego. And say, God, please, you know, almost close your eyes and, and see yourself standing outside yourself, watching yourself, sitting the way you are. then God, please make me into a chariot for you. Make me into a throne for your presence and dwell in me and on me wherever I go and whatever I'm doing. And this love of God is, is the ultimate and the most complete form of divakut says the Maharal. And by the way, he gives no erotic qualities when he discusses this stuff. He doesn't give any erotic qualities, despite what the sefirot are. He just talks about it as pure love without giving any of those kind of physical analogies. Um, In human love, when we love other human beings, we never really fully achieve a union with them, but with God, it's so different because what do you realize once you love God enough, you realize something unbelievable because the love that you're loving God with already derived from God. So what is one Christian mystic says it like this? He says, we love God with the love God has given us to love him. It's so beautiful because then that allows you to see yourself really as just a conduit. You're just a vessel. You're just a vessel for this divine love into you and out of you. You don't own it. You're just lucky enough to perceive it as it's going through you, and that's real love of God. Is Absolutely.
1: the it's given to us. It's not. It's not us. Exactly.
0: It's not derived from the essence of you because you are not a separate you. Because the the, the whole notion that you're a separate you is gonna prevent you from really connecting with God, right? And and it's it's so hard because we're we
2: doesn't change the fact the power
0: of that You're right. I mean, so that's the thing, is is you, you wanna you,
2: you
1: contemplate God with the thought that you
0: right? Yeah, no, it's it's right. I mean, I, I don't think it does. I I think the, it's exactly right.
1: I I buy my son a cell phone so he could call me. <laughs> exactly. I've got him the phone. Exactly.
0: Beautiful. So so <laughs> I love that. And, you know, even regarding evil, I think this is the hardest thing we had to that class last semester about the shadow element and embracing the shadow and understanding the evil side of you. And, you know, that's why, of course, the the Hindus will talk about uh, Shiva. And, you know, you'll have all these other religions that have their, their, you know, dualistic view of the world, because so often from our human perspective, there's this evil that is that's unfortunately, sometimes we feel like we're a part of that. And you know what? That's the yin and the yang idea. That's the, the top idea that there's just inherent in reality is that there's going to be both. But as long as you have the humility to take a step back and say, OK, you know what? It's just divine stuff flowing through me. And when it feels evil, you know, it's just empty phenomena rolling on. It's just karma going through whatever, however you want to perceive it. You know, I'm not. I don't know. I, it's it's such a difficult thing because you have to be more specific than that. I don't, I don't want you guys to go commit murders now and say Michael told me it's just uh, it's not me. It's just God's evil flowing through me. <laughs> Please don't do that. But but you get the point. Is that the the point is to open yourself to to the love, hopefully. And you know, if you feel like this, okay, just let it pass through you. You know, and and if I, I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. But if I just tell you, oh, don't be bad. What is that going to do? You know. Um. So so I'll read this quote here uh, from uh, the Maharal. He says, The love a person has for God is not his own, but derives from God. It comes from God and humans can return it to God. Love of God is more fitting than love of anything else. For in every kind of love which obtains between two lovers, though they may cleave to one another, nevertheless, each retains his individuality. However, in the human love for God, the human being returns his spirit and soul to God to the extent that a person loses his individuality and completely cleaves to God as it is ran. Le'ahava et Adonai Elohecha udov bo. Right? And that's the continuation of it. So this is complete love. Real devikut is the ability to fully, fully, fully let go of yourself. And like we mentioned so many times, that's real faith. Not insisting on a future outcome. Fully in this moment and only in this moment letting go of yourself and of whatever you think is the right thing. And it's so hard because now you might say, Oh, so I shouldn't go love my this and my that. No, I'm not saying don't love your particulars in your life, but realize that there's kind of two things going on at once, that there's two levels to dwell at, at one time. So at the same time, as you're loving your particular son, you could say, God, I love you at the same time. Thank you. You know, and that, the, the hardest thing is reading Akedat, it's hot, because we see when those two things start to collide, And how does Abraham Avinu handle it? He handles it with the word hinani, both to God and to his son Yitzhak. And then it resolves with the hinani. And so the whole time he's walking along and he's able to live in contradiction. Maybe Abraham was a tremendous mystic. Probably was. And he's living in this contradiction. God told me to kill my son, but it's God. and, And He's walking forward. And he's just putting one foot in front of the other. And he says that God is going to show me and God does show him. And that's why the name of the mountain is God will show me. Um, God is like a consuming fire. Yes, but the human soul is a divine spark. So it really was part of that fire all along. And for some people, this meant that you could re-merge with God in death. Right? So what do, we, do you remember last class we gave? Or two classes ago, we spoke about uh Anich Nesuba Pardes. Four people went into the orchard, and of course, this was some mystical experience that they had Bi Akiba, Alishab bin Avuya bin Zoma, and Ben Azai. Ben Azai went in and he died. So some people might see this as a negative, but a lot of mystics see this as a positive. Like, oh, good for him. He merged back with infinity. Did he do anything wrong? Well, he's not even there anymore for you to criticize him, he just backed with God. You know and and so for some people it means then death, but for, for a lot of us it means temporary union with God, temporary, complete union. So people who will you know be completely depressed and then go to a six-hour psilocybin session will have a complete mystical experience in which they said there was no me, there was no me anymore, there was just God, and I was God and God was me, and that was it. And and by the way, it was also nothing. <laughs> It's the same God, nothingness me. It was all the same. And somehow they, they come out of this and they say it was eternal. It was beyond space. It was beyond time. I could have been there a day. I could have been there a billion years, but even though they know, okay, they told me when I came back, it was a six hour session. It felt eternal, but they came back and they said, okay, now that I'm back, I had this temporary union. Now I could have self-transformation. And that's the way that the mystics saw it as well. So I want to tell you, you know, you guys have probably heard this from me before, but the idea within Buddhism actually that's corollary to this is you have a bodhisattva and you have a pratyeka Buddha. A pratyeka Buddha is the private Buddha who goes on his own and he just meditates on a mountaintop by himself. And that's it. He doesn't come back. I say, okay, good for him. And, I, and a lot of people don't say good for him. You know, Some of the commentaries, I'm sure, within Buddhism will say that he's not so good. But then you have the Bodhisattva who has the mystical experience and the union with God, and then he comes back to society. Sadiqim as they say. That the Sadiq fundamentally needs to be back in the city helping people with what he learned and what he experienced and how to elevate himself. He's going to learn how to elevate other people. And they the, the, the quote uh, classically, is Helik Eloah They call the soul this portion of God from on high, and the soul is housed within the body uh, while still remaining attached to the fire. Right, so the soul is there, but somehow that spark is still attached to the fire the whole time while it's walk, you know walking around in your body. It's still attached to God from which it emerged in the first place. So love of God. Right. It's, it's not just uh, uh, an attraction of like to like. It's not like the adhesion of water. It's not like, OK, I'm the water and God's the water. And there it is. But it really is the reunion of a part with a whole. Right. So they always give what, what kind of, uh, uh, of images. Do you remember anything like the drop in the ocean, right. the spark in the fire or the ember, maybe? And then you talk about the, the, the trunk to the to the sorry, the trunk of the tree and the branch of the tree. They really were one all the time. The leaf thinks that it's separate, but really the whole time it was derivative from that whole thing. And when you reach that level, you realize there was no separation. This whole time, what I thought was a separate me, even right now, what I, what I think right now is a separate me, it's fully, fully, fully part of God.
1: Almost everything becomes like there's also no separate things not, yes there's no separate self
0: but like almost like, everything. Mm-hmm. you talk about everything and nothing yeah. right if there's everything then there are no things anymore so that's nothing now it's nothing everything is so everything fraction. is
1: nothing everything is a fraction itself.
0: yeah, yeah. Aywa. <laughs> exactly there you go paradoxes galore but that's what we love now right i hope we all love paradoxes now After that whole spiel um could,
1: uh, compare, yeah. like the deck of cards. Each mm-hmm. card is individual, but when you put them in the deck, they all
0: absolutely. Yeah, they're just the part of the deck. 100. Any anything that that resonates with you, I like. You know, um. So now, what are the ramifications of this? It might get a little bit scary. You, know, you say, "Okay, what am I going to do now?" So I'm walking down the street and I see the homeless man. I invite him in my house. He's me, after all. He's also me. And what about you know? So you could go crazy with this. You say. Well, first of all, let's say one thing. Love thy neighbor as thyself. now has a new meaning. It's like, you know, why you have to love your neighbor like yourself? Because he really is yourself on some deep mystical level. And I think um, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, one of these more modern Jewish scholars, will say real highest level is to be able to look into the eyes of another individual and to be able to see God within their eyes. And, you, and it's like looking at yourself, looking at yourself, looking at yourself. When you remove your ego so much, it's like when you put two mirrors in front of each other. You know, have you ever see that? I used to have a mirror bathroom in my house as a kid. And I used to always play by like the door, you know, where the, the door is kind of like closing. And you could see it almost looks like there's a million rooms all the way down there. And there's like a million me's peeing, you know, and it's like <laughs> you have a lot of fun for hours and hours as a kid. But, but in, a, in this level, I could really take on that character. Is when you, it's like me looking at myself, looking at myself, looking at myself, looking at myself, right? It's an unbelievable level to get to. Um, So ethics now is about how one part of God is interacting with another part of God. There's this beautiful dance that's going on, a cosmic dance all around. And I love this analogy of the dance because what's the point of the dance? Is there an end goal? Do you dance from here to get to there? No, you're dancing because you like the, the dance itself, the music. You like the music itself. You're not waiting for it to end. There's no destination for the music. It's not like, you know, if the, like Alan Watts says, if, if the point of the music was for the end, then we would just go to a concerto where then just hear the final chord, dum. And we'd be like, oh, let's go home. That was great. They got to the end. But obviously that's not the point of it. So what is the point? Ah, so now you might say, oh, my, is Michael telling me that life is meaningless? I am, but also I'm not because we like paradox again. Right. So the meaning is that there is no meaning. So a lot of these, these, uh, Eastern guys will say purposelessness, purposelessness, right. That there is no purpose there. And I'm, I'm only saying it like that, not to get myself canceled, but because that's how Alan Watts quotes it. So please no, I hope nobody digs that up. I'm not going to delete the sound bite. Um, but, but in a way, once you stop living with a purpose, you start living with a purpose. I know that might make no sense to you, but when you fully arrive in now and you say, okay, I don't have to impose a purpose on this moment. Now you're able to open yourself and say, okay, there are dramas and stories that I can enjoy and be a part of, but I don't see them as absolute anymore. The story of me is no longer going to determine the fate of existence. It's just the story of me. And, it'll, and the show goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And that's what just keeps happening. It's just a dance that keeps rolling on. Um, so we mentioned earlier when a mystic is performing mitzvot, it's as though God himself is performing the mitzvot through this person. So Rabbi Nachman Rebetzal says, when one is finally integrated in Ensof, his Torah is the Torah of God himself. And his prayer is the prayer of God himself. When a person merits to be absorbed in Ensof, his Torah in prayer, are those of God himself. When the mystic performs the commandments, it is God himself who performs them. So, so we have a new meaning to the Midrash, right? What is the Midrash? It says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, observes his own commandments. Hashem keeps his own mitzvot. So, say, what the heck does that who mean? Else? Yeah, well, God, well, God is going to eat matzah? And it's like, no, 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 through us. Exactly. Perfect. Um, it's in our Schneir Zalman of Liadi I think his name is the Magid Some I'm very bad with the Yiddish pronunciations. Um, God is called by him a consuming fire. Sorry, he, he quotes the Torah as God being Esh Ochelet. Why? Because true devikut involves giving up one's essence to be swallowed into God. Now, this doesn't mean you can't come back and go to work and have kids and start a business. It just means while meditating for those 10 minutes, be willing to give up yourself fully to God. And this might sound so counterintuitive and so different than anything we've taught, but it's an experience to have once in a while, you know? And I think there's a lot to gain from it. And the real thing to gain from it is those moments themselves, because anybody who experiences those moments will tell you there is nothing like those moments because that's just what is. And that's the most beautiful thing that ever is. Um, And so they make a play on the, what's the Hebrew word for I? Ani. What's the Hebrew word for nothingness? Mm. Ain, right? N. it's the same letters. But if you, if you take away the, that insistence on being ani, you're able to open yourself to the ain, to the nothingness, which is everything. So step out of your own way. It's about doing less. It's about giving up that concept of the self. They call it bitul hayesh, what we call ego death, ego disillusionment dissolving your concept of having a self that's called bitul hayesh completely nullifying that which is why do they say that because we call we talk about yes the something that we know of is created from nothing ah so now what you're doing to get back to the nothing is uncreation you're going back from the world of things into the word the world of no things um, and that's ego death. That's that's removing this ego, which sees tall bara and separate, and here and there, and no. no um, And that doesn't mean you don't come back and say, "I love this the, the illusion too. The illusion too is beautiful. Otherwise, it wouldn't be." God is playing a game with himself in in manifesting as you experiencing the world this way. So again, now we have this this ancient uh, uh, debate: what's better, ahava or yirah? What's better to have love of God? or awe of God. Which one of these is going to open you more to the infinite? So a lot of these hachamim, I think the Maharal says that awe is like a prerequisite to love. And it's going to lead you there. The Ramban says that it's possible even to attain, you know, this level of love and this level of awe, you know, that we often attribute to the afterlife within this life. Nachmanides, the Ramban says this, says, through divakut, you're, it's possible for you to transform yourself, your body, your very essence into a dwelling place for the divine in this life that will remain that way every single moment for the rest of your life. Who do you know of classically that's spoken about this way, not from Judaism? The Buddha. Right? What does Buddha mean? Buddha means the one who woke up. So they have a tradition in the East of a person like this. So I was like, whoa. I'm it. I am, I am all of it. I am. I am not. I am not a separate self. He can't even put it into words. He just went about the rest of his life being egoless somehow. And it's possible to attain this within Judaism as well. So that's why I think it's so interesting. Now, after you have this transformative experience, what are you able to do now? You're able to take a divine perspective. You're able to look at the world through... Heaven's eyes, as they say, you know, the the uh, the draw sings that, I think, in Prince of Egypt, right? Look at the world through heaven's eyes. You're seeing yourself from the outside. A lot of people, when they come back from their psychedelic trips in these, in these studies that Michael Pollan is quoting, they say, I was able to see myself from the outside. One person says, I saw myself like a gargoyle smoking cigarettes. And I saw myself in such a nishah way, in such a disgusting. I said, I don't want to do that anymore. And then they, they stopped smoking cigarettes after that. And it's like, a, it's an amazing way to be because when you experience yourself from the outside, you're able to say, okay, now I, I, I kind of see it more clearly. If I'm stuck in here, I have such a limited view of what's going on. But when I see everything panoramically all at once, and I see the, the leeches and the earth, and I see the bacteria and the celestial bodies and the galaxies and everything from the most microscopic to the most macroscopic all at once, that's a divine perspective. And that's why I love astronomy so much and biology, because they open you to losing, you know, and letting go of this extremely limited and parochial view of the ego. And, you know, I think that's so beautiful because so many things do that for us. Music and science and, and art, they're so powerful in the way that they help us shock our ego out of its view. Um, now, a lot of people will tell you, isn't that so escapist? You went for six months to a, a meditation retreat? Really? What about the people who need you in the community? What about the ani'im? What about the... Da, 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 and they go on and on and on. The mystic will say, it's la hefich. The mystical realm is the most real realm. And you can, you can only be convinced of that when you've experienced it. And then what's the world of illusions and vicissitudes? This one. So when you're coming back into this world and getting lost in this world, now you're doing the escapism. The real escapism is getting fully lost here.
1: Yeah?
0: Okay, sure. Whenever, whenever they're ready. 100%. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Uh, are they coming in? I don't
1: know.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, so whenever they, whenever they come in, I'll, I'll, I'll stop it just until they come and I'll continue with, with your, with your permission. We're, we're already, I don't know if you see the fire coming down. <laughs> exactly. So, so real escapism in this view is getting lost so much in the vicissitudes of life. So it would behoove you to go spend time on a meditation retreat so that you could re- live out the rest of your life, not being lost in the vicissitudes of life. Um, so there's a beauty and a value in having isolation in order to achieve this elevated state and then coming back into the community and elevating it. Like the Arizal, the Baal Shem Tov did this. So the Vikut could be seen as an end goal, but it could also be seen as a prerequisite to the next phase of your spiritual unfoldment. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both, because again, we love paradox. So the Vikut in this very moment is worth it for this very moment. It's infinitely pleasurable in this moment, and also it has the value of, of future benefits for you. So don't meditate only because it's good for you now, or only because it's good for you in the future. Meditate for just because it's good for both. So right, we don't have uh, really any time left. We, we're gonna we're gonna finish this up next week, but I want, if anybody has any questions and comments, I'd I'd love to hear.
1: Please. No,
0: nothing. I don't believe in stupid questions.
1: Plus I came a little late. Yeah. I'm bigger that you said. Yeah. Really, really Thank you. Take me back to the beginning. Ah. Just, and I don't even know the purpose of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 100%. So maybe to help
0: me understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad you asked that. So oh, okay. No, don't apologize. So the, the, the class series is called Rationalism versus Mysticism. So I think so classically, we're taught such a rational perspective. So for me, one thing that opens me to the experience of God is the ability to go beyond the rational, to go beyond the confines of just my logic.
2: <laughs> is part Because okay. you're Mikey. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you're the best. Because you're, Mike, you're Mikey. That's right. But I, wanna, uh, I, I just want to I want to add something. So yeah. you say, so, so you mentioned Rabbi Nachman of so, uh, Breslov. So his 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 thing, his mantra, through yeah. my rabbi I learned for decades, is, is hit boy they do total seclusion, and yeah. talk to God. How does that connect to your to your message tonight? Hmm. So that's exactly what we were saying at the end, is that exactly that you could
0: have a private person, but I think it's beneficial to after you do that, to do it for as long as you feel you need to do it. But come back into society and benefit the world. You know, right. That's he's
2: saying he's saying basically what I'm getting is hit did to go out, scream out to God, handle your thing, and then come back and implement the proper procedures or whatever you want to do. Exactly. Bidiuk. Right. That's exactly, exactly it. And and I, you know, I don't think we should put
0: anybody down. You know, if there's people who want to do that for years, even you have no idea what they're going through you have no clue what each ego has going on for it. So if it's part of their unfoldment, you know, so, so I think it plays into exactly what the whole corpus of this class is supposed to be. So this is actually the 10th class technically because we did nine classes in the first semester. But, so we spoke a lot about psychologically, the way that people perceive, uh, you know, this, the mystical experience and the way that they perceive themselves and realizing that you yourself are made up of different layers. You have your animalistic portion, like we would call the elephant, your reptilian brain. And then you have your neocortex, which is the thinking part of the, of the brain. And to be kind of in concert with both of them and, and in peace with both of them now is a very big part. So I think a lot of this class is just to open you to the idea of what is mysticism? What's the purpose of it? And, and what is it like? How does it differ from just pure rationalism? And, you know, what do we what do we kind of benefit from? just from understanding this stuff and allowing it to interpenetrate our life side. So in the beginning of the class, I said, I don't, I don't want this to just be pie in the sky. I don't want it to be something that, Oh, you know, Michael gave a nice class, but you know, it sounded very uh, out of touch with reality. It sounded kind of out of reach for me. It didn't affect me the rest of the week. If that happens, I feel so bad because what I want it to be is I want it to be something that Really allows you now you go home, you see your wife and your kids and you say, you know, I love you and I love you through through you. I love God and, and find little ways of, of creating an intimacy with God now. So instead of only seeing God as this king in heaven sitting on a throne, now you can see God as, as your beloved. You can see God as, as imminent rather than only transcendent. This is one of the probably the biggest themes in the whole class series. Is is God kadosh kadosh kadosh, or is He karov Hashem kore av Is He close to everybody? who Calls out to Him in truth, and and it's it's hard to live with both of those. I'm, I thank you, thank you so much for asking, and thank you for coming. Yeah, please, hundred percent. Yeah. Anybody else? Questions or comments?
1: I think uh, the most inspirational thing in the world, anywhere in the world, is music. I mentioned it before. And it it shows in the prayers, like when someone's saying the chazan saying Kaddish with a beautiful melody, you feel inspired. When a guy's just saying it like regular weekday, you know, you're not as inspired. So that proves it right there exactly that that rhythm to us Mm -hmm. that connects somehow, yeah, like you said, the spark, maybe that the music triggers
0: that absolutely where the society is 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 There's a little all bit all ill world. I mean,
1: in africa they, they they love music and yeah. they dance you know music makes you dance absolutely
0: well you know you you reminded me i feel like we're living in an age when we're so consumed with producing the next thing and getting the job done that music is so beautiful because it it, it sucks you into the moment and into the enjoyment and we we need to find more things that do that for us especially in our relationship with God, if you're saying Arbit in order to finish Arbit, then you're really saying Arbit. So I heard some unbelievable thing from one of these, probably a more Kabbalistic thing. I think it's Rabbi by Dr. Akiva Tatz. He says, if in the span of time, from when you stepped those three steps in the beginning of the Amidah till those three steps at the end of the Amidah, if you're the same person in the beginning and the end, you've not done what you, wish, you set out to really do during the Amidah. It's supposed to be a transformative <laughs> experience. And I'm not saying that you should feel down on yourself. or That's obviously not what I'm trying to say. But what I am wow. saying, it's supposed to be something that's so intimate and beautiful that it opens you and it it really allows you to get out of the hustle and bustle of the rat race.
1: We have these trends, like Some of these, some of these I, don't, I don't know what they are.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, so I think it's very it really lacking that, in certain that ways. That yeah. Like, so that's why Hasidut exists, I think, is because they get there. They have a nigan it Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you look
1: in like this, some cities even right inside that, this Kavanaugh in the cities where it's Kavanaugh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like having those Kama-Nam makes it much. Yes,
0: 100%. So, so the, I think the, the, the real, the, the most important thing, the most important thing is exactly what you're saying is to make anything into a meditation. So I don't know if you meditate or not, but you know, I, you could, there's so many apps out there. I don't think it has to be a Jewish one. I think any meditation, any, any meditation at all is, is something that is going to allow you to really do work on this stuff. right? So if you meditate now, you open yourself to a lot like you like you're calling these trance like or transformative experiences. So yeah, if you want to read Arya Kaplan has a book on a beginner's guide to Jewish meditation. So I think that could be could be good for you. I I loved I think
2: it. Um, <laughs> yeah. As and probably had the intention to, to achieve a lot of goals with that Like they is a reason you know you're supposed to set aside set aside time during your day, uh, three times a day, uh, and think about things that are worrying about you. Yeah, I feel like uh,
0: I feel like uh, like Buddhism and meditation is like
1: meditate, and that experience, that godly experience, will come to you in a sense. Versus Judaism, where like you're doing certain actions and you're praying, mm-hmm. and through the
0: prayer and through the actions, you're going to get to to a similar yeah. You're going to get to that
1: meditative state. That makes sense.
0: 100. And I think both actually have both both Buddhism, Buddhism and Judaism probably have just as many you know rituals. I'm maybe not in a halakhic sense in Buddhism, but I'm sure they have different kinds of actions and ceremonies that they can do that they feel brings them to that experience, just like we have our mitzvah. You know, so it's it's meant to be that I think in a in a deep way. You know that it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You could sit in, in silent meditation, or you can be doing actions, and it can both they can both work. Ready for Arbi? I'm Ar-B? ready. All right, guys, thank you so, so much, really. Hazakuk to everybody. Beautiful experience. Thanks, Mike. That, Thanks, right, Thanks right, Mikey. Right.
2: Take care, guys. I'll I'll see you later. A I love you. Allah Mike I'll see you later. Right. Take, Take care.
0: care.